It's the 7th of November, 2015, and this is episode 261. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, exciting, and empowering, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin, and today we're joined by Ohad Asor, who's the founder and brain parent of TauChain. How's it going today, Ohad? Hi, fine. Thank you. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me here. Thanks for joining us. So why don't you tell us what TauChain is and what you are trying to accomplish with this system? Yeah, if you ask what the client essentially is, then the client is essentially a compiler to a programming language. I hesitate whether to say new or not because we take syntax and semantics and combine from existing languages and also a blockchain built-ins. So we have a programming language that has a blockchain built-in in that language. What the Touchin client is doing is downloading its own code from the blockchain and executes it. Imagine an application that all it is doing is downloads its own code from GitHub, compiles the code, and runs it. And again and again, while the code might be changed in the meanwhile, so it automatically updates itself. Okay, cool. So what you have is a peer-to-peer network where the rules of the network are plastic and they can be changed by clients. That's correct. They can be... Um, either separated, there can be several rule sets, or call it several applications, that are independent of each other. And there can be applications where rules are set collaboratively by the users. Over the Tau platform, you can program any collaborative or uh, offline uh, application. Uh, and this is indeed, for what I said so far, too generalized, because what is the difference between indeed TauChain and uh, something that downloads its own code from GitHub? When it comes to decentralized networks, uh, trustless networks, that become a much greater concern. When I have code in hands, how can I know what the code is doing? How can I trust this code? And this is, of course, a very non-trivial question. And this is the main obstacle when trying to generalize the blockchain too much, I'd say. Maximum expressiveness in a way such that you cannot know what the code is doing um, is the case of pure incompleteness. It is called completeness because it can express everything. But from about the time of Turing, uh, we had Gedel. And Gedel taught us that we can pick either completeness, the ability to express everything, or consistency. We cannot have both. In other words, if we pick Turing machine logic, then we necessarily can contradict ourselves. We can prove everything true, but we can also prove everything false. So we cannot trust a proof under a Turing machine logic. On the other hand, under consistent logic, we are able to trust proof because you cannot prove any false theorem, any false claim. 
You just can prove it. So if I understand this, so Goodell said that Turing completeness is maybe undesirable because in a Turing complete system, say you could have an infinite loop or in, in a Turing complete system, how could you try to prove a false statement to be true, you know? It's a much deeper uh, problem than that. Gödel didn't speak about Turing complete systems, but about complete logics in general. And Gödel proved that logics that are rich enough to express arithmetics split into two, either consistent or complete. They can either prove all correct and incorrect theorems, or they can prove part of the correct theorems without proving the, the incorrect ones. And this is this trade-off between expressibility and decidability is uh, up to the user, up to the mathematician. At the scope of decentralized networks, and moreover, even at the scope of programming in general, decidability wins for the very reason that the machine can understand this code and its consequences. You can supply a proof that your code is secure or it is doing that what it is supposed to do. Therefore, we don't need any more QA because we get mathematical proofs that there are no bugs, that the code meets its requirements. So this logic that developed over the last decades is the holy grail of computer science as for today. Because as you hear, it changes everything we know about software. Everything we hate about computers, that they don't act as we expect them to act. And it is so expensive to develop software with some a moderate amount of quality. This all can be changed. While you can formally prove assertions about code. Now, what do we lose here? We spoke about Gödel's trade-off between expressibility and decidability. So we have to give up something. What do we, do we give up? The good news that we give up only what is possible to be done with infinite machines. And we don't have infinite machines anyway. Turing machine is infinite by definition. So this uh, Martin Left type theory, that's the name of, uh, of the logic I'm speaking about, can express everything a finite computer can do, which is good enough for everyone, and is decidable. You can understand meaningfully what given code or any piece of information means and its consequences. So a system that is has consistency instead of completeness and has decidability instead of expressibility, you can evaluate a program and prove that it's going to do what you say it's going to do without actually executing the code? Is that the advantage here? That's right. Okay. That's right. You can prove it correct a priori. People commonly think that the problem in Turing machine is that you cannot decide whether it halts. And that's a very common misconception. Whether it, I'm sorry, whether, whether it halts, like whether the code ever actually stops? Yeah, yes, the halting problem. The problem with the halting problem is that not that the answer is no. It's not that the answer is there is no Turing machine that decides whether another Turing machine holds. If it doesn't exist, that's fine, we can live with that. The problem with the halting question is that the answer is both yes and no. You can prove that this machine exists 
and you can prove that this machine does not exist. And this is an example of undecidability. This is where you see that Turing logic is self-contradictory. And Turing was aware of that. He published that himself, the, the paradox of the halting problem, which shows us that once we can prove any statement and its negation, we can no longer trust proofs on Turing machines. Okay, so now Ethereum is a, is a very popular project and they've been boasting Turing completeness with their programming language, their smart contract language. What kind of disadvantages do you see or do you see like a, it's kind of like a crisis, or like a logic crisis occurring in Ethereum? I think like you go to the bank to, let's say, take a mortgage and they give you to sign an agreement that you can't possibly read and understand and uh, and even if you do read and understand, you can't possibly argue with them. That's pretty much the case when your contract is Turing complete. You get a piece, a bulk of information, of complicated information, possibly complicated, that you, you cannot really appreciate the consequences of this information. Um, at the scope of code, it can even be malicious code. But imagine that the contract the bank gives you was formalized in some logic that is unambiguous and that you can trust its proofs, then you could query what happens on this case, what happened on that case. Can you prove me that um, I will never pay more uh, than I should pay according to this contract and so on? The contract becomes really meaningful. I see. So just simply because it's not human readable, it's not, it's not simple. It's written in a language that only accountants and lawyers can understand. N not even machine can understand it. <laughs> okay. It's, it's logically contradictive. You can prove both true and false on Turing complete machines. Hence, you can simply not trust any formal proof under Turing complete language. So inherently, uh, the data is not meaningful and its consequences are not accessible. On the side of the logic, all meanings and consequences, as long as they are finite, they are accessible. Okay. So can you think of, of an example where this will, like in, in Ethereum, in a Turing-complete smart contract language, how would this issue actually affect the user? Would you just be fooled by a contract or, or you can you can post a contract that produces an error? You know, how does this actually come down to somebody using Ethereum where they actually have to fight with this issue? Indeed can be fooled and uh, there are no ways that the machine can verify that the contract is what you expect it to be because of the language. And moreover, the, the code on Ethereum runs locally on your machine. They can't possibly assert that the code is secure because it's it's mathematically impossible. All right, so let's let's move on to the actual structure of TauChain. Now, you mentioned that the blockchain is sort of built into the programming language, but when you're running TauChain, is it based on a blockchain? Is that the core, the way it is in Bitcoin? Or is the blockchain sort of like an app that runs on an even broader, more general type of system? I'd say somewhere in the middle. The use in TauChain for even uh, completely local and standalone applications for one computer only is also very encouraged because you can again prove assertions about your code. You can know that your code is working. You can ask the compiler questions about your code. 
and not only code, you can express any knowledge with it, including mathematics. This new logic reaches so far that uh, it is now considered as the new foundations of mathematics. Um, over the past decade, it's slowly accepted as the new foundations of mathematics. So you can express all science with it, all constructive science. So does Tau Chain even need to run on a peer-to-peer network, or is the project you're working on could just be a standalone application that I use to write code by myself without even connecting to the internet? Either writing code by yourself or by using automated theory improving by analyzing axioms and data sets and rules and knowledge, uh, plenty of things to do it to do with it locally. How, so where does the network come in then? So you've got a consistent, decidable programming language, which I can use to write code on my own machine by myself, and I can prove that the code will do what I want it to do without even running it, which is, like you say, a holy grail of programming. So now once we add the network element, how do my peers get involved? How do you, how do you step up from this programming language and compiler to a peer-to-peer network? Well, okay, first let me mention that w- without the network, such products already exist. That's not new. But with network with, and with blockchain, we get the Tau chain. The language has built-ins of blockchain and DHT. DHT is like BitTorrent, the ability to share files and locate them easily. And uh, by blockchain, uh, we mean that there will be one root chain. And on this root chain, there will be the code of the client itself. After all, as we explained, the network is self-defining. The very protocol is self-defining in its own language. So it may change with time. For example, a Bitcoin Core versus a XT fork because of the block size. On Tau, you simply change the rules and a new client replaces the code from Genesis so all rules can be changed and no fork is needed. Okay, so on that point, is there a voting mechanism or, you know, what, what does it take for the rules of the Tau chain to be officially changed? Let's say you wanted to increase a block size. Do you just submit a transaction to the Tau chain blockchain and, and everybody votes on it? Or what, how does the rule get submitted and approved? Well, th- that's a very good question. As, as we all know, it's a very hard question, and no one has a complete solution for decentralized uh, voting mechanism. But th- there are solutions that are uh, subject to trade-offs, uh, just like in Bitcoin, for example, the, that uh, we give more power to miners, for example. Our plan is to deliver Tau uh, clean of rules, maybe some vital uh, intermediate rules and the first users will form together with us and on the tau system the rules of the root chain and how rules are changed the very question of the rules of rule making of rule making because after all they don't have to set the rules of the whole network they have to set the rules of creating new subworlds new contexts new applications I see. So the Tau Chain Genesis block is is such a clean slate that you will be deciding the rule changing voting mechanism within the first couple days of the launch. Like that's not even something the development team is trying to figure out. You're just going to 
set it free and the users of the client will start saying, well, 75% and then you can increase the block size and stuff like that? In, in general, yes. I guess it will take more than a few days and it will be a, a relatively a small to medium group of uh, evangelists that will form those first rules. But yes, uh, t- together we will set how rules can be changed. Is there a risk in the early days that, I mean, assuming there's only a small number of clients active, that those few clients in the early days can sort of just dominate and take over the project because there's nobody else to sort of argue with them on online? Yes, it is possible. And of course, the first users will have to set their mind on that, to set rules that this will not happen, how to secure the network. And of course, the network may be restarted. And recall that there is no coin involved. So at this stage, yes, uh, there is no loss. Just forming the rules of the network together. So in the beginning, there's no actual token even. There's not even really a blockchain yet. There is a blockchain that contains the rules and uh, contains uh, hashed, time-stamped, arbitrary data from the DHT. Tau will not have a coin at any case at the root root chain. We won't deliver it with the coin. Of course, the users may decide later. Coins can be created on Tau as applications. This is what Tau is, a platform for decentralized applications. And we plan to make the Agoras project over Tau that will offer a coin that we pre-sale now. And we will offer an economy with the new innovative features of Tau that simply cannot be done on existing networks. For example, I can publish requirements for code, for software, and whoever writes a code that meets the requirements wins coins. So developers and who hires them don't need to trust each other anymore. No more chicken-egg problem. Because you can write a smart contract that says, if you can produce code that does this, then you just win the prize in the contract. And because the decidability consistency of the Tau chain code, you can actually prove the code does what you want. You say that very accurately. Okay, that's really interesting. So before we get into the contracts, the root chain, the core chain, will not actually have, let's say, tokens or financial transactions. The root chain is just the client code. Is that right? It is two things, the client code and... I mentioned that we have a DHT layer of arbitrary data. Think of it, for example, a large enough, not too large, a peer-to-peer network can scrap the whole internet overnight. It can overnight have a shared database, which is Google's database, and can query it and say, you know, overnight you have a decentralized search engine. And this data, sometimes we want to secure it. We want to timestamp it on the blockchain. How can we timestamp enormous amounts of data? By the algorithm of Merkle tree, which is logarithmic in its sides, and you can take arbitrarily large data and secure it into a single hash. Just like in, in Bitcoin's blockchain, the blocks Merkle root a hash. Okay, so this root chain is the client code, and it also secures the DHT with timestamping. So that blockchain, are there miners? Is it proof of work? Is it a one-minute block? You know, what are the, the details of that chain? Yes, so first I must say that what I said about 
the root chain, that's typically how I see it and how we will deliver it at first. But the users with time may change it completely. They can decide whatever they want over the root chain. So the specifications of the uh, block time and, and, uh, or in DHT, which uh, data to serve and incentives um, or uh, incentive to miners or to nodes or everything, that's all up to the rules. The Tau client comes with, with no rules and you can set all those rules configurably in any way you want on this bare Tau network and that's what we will all do together. So, but this root chain is sort of like a, it's the special chain. Like, like I can create an app on Tau chain, that's Matthew Zipkin coin, and I can make my own details and I can, I don't know, create and destroy, but... Yeah, the, the relationship between the root chain and other chains are just like uh, Bitcoin's side chains, the side chains algorithm. So you can have many other chains that all have incentive to support the root chain Therefore, the root chain doesn't need a coin. Its very existence is the incentive to the applications over it that might incentivize uh, miners in a way that all other applications enjoy that. Okay, that's great. So you mentioned um, Agoras. What is, what is that? As I said, Tau is, is only a platform, but we also plan to deliver applications and uh, Agoras will be a marketplace of uh, an intelligent marketplace. You can set your local rules. You know, you have an intelligent agent that follows your rules. In there is a network of all other such intelligent agents and they can do any economy they want. First, as we mentioned, the code for money market, that you have no longer rational reason to hire programmers on the old way and the programmers have no rational reason to get hired in the, the old way because there is this trust issue over Tau chain. There, there is no trust issue. Another point is renting computational power. Think I want to fold protein. Someone wants to fold protein, need millions of computers to find a new medicine. And they can simply hire computational power. The computational power on decentralized network, on peer-to-peer -peer network is enormous. The fastest supercomputer in the world has floating point operations per second equivalent to about 8,000 home quiet chip uh, GPUs. So that, that's nothing in terms of, of big peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks. Hey folks, the magic word for episode 261 is many. That's M-A-N-Y. Many. You've got until the 14th of November to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Quick update, I had a great time at the half-day conference. Big thanks to the people at Digital Garage for putting on the event that I attended earlier this week. I've got some great recordings from it featuring fresh talks with lots of insightful speakers, and I'm planning to run pretty much everything on LTV while I take two weeks off from the show proper. If you need to get in touch with me, I'd suggest doing it before the 14th of November, or it'll have to wait until after I get back in early December. 
LTB-related stuff can go to Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Tokenly stuff can go to Adam at tokenly.com. No sponsor today, so we'll just listen to this music for just a little bit longer and then rejoin the conversation. Thanks for listening. an issue if I uh, didn't, important issue I didn't mention before about the consequences of the decidability of code together with collaborative uh, data. And the point is code reuse. You know, I, I said that um, proving assertions on code and verifiable computing, it's all exist and indeed, why don't we see it everywhere? Why do software still contain bugs? And the two answers are that those existing languages are very complicated. And in general, to formally prove requirements of code is, is an expensive and not an, not an easy, easy task. So we address the first problem by taking maybe the most uh, close to human readable language around, which is the family of languages called RDF, which consists of sentences of three words, subject, predicate object or subject verb object. This way, that's the Tao language. You express everything by sentences of three words. It can be in, in any language. What existing languages use this structure already? For example, notation three. Okay. And the second issue about the cost of formal verification, and here is a much more great advantage is how do a programmer come to write software? They first break it into functions. Now they can either write those functions or over Tau, they can write only the requirements from the function and find a provably ready implementation out there on the Tau network. If some, it's enough that one person already wrote this function, it can be reused safely without a second thought. So suddenly all know-hows can be reused, can be combined. That's amazing. These tuples, or triples, the subject, predicate, object, this is the basis for everything that happens on the Tau chain. If I'm writing, uh, let's say I'm going to write Matthew Zipkin coin on Tau chain, I'll start with these RDF type triples. Yes. Yes, up to two comments. It's basically four words. The fourth word is context. So you can separate vocabularies on context, yet they can still refer to each other. And the second point is there are many languages that are syntactical sugaring to triples. For example, notation three. On notation three, you can write triples or quads, but you can write more complicated sentences that are interpreted as triples. And indeed, sometimes writing only triples or quads can be very cumbersome. And those sugarings are very helpful 
but it doesn't matter. It's it's only a front end. You can have endless front ends to tau as long as it converts to triples. So if you just wanted to, if I just wanted to write a for loop that just I don't know that uh, that anytime I put in the letter a letter of the alphabet, it would just give me the next three letters of the alphabet back. You know, in Python, you could do that in probably two lines of code. Uh, you remind me, I, I published in Bitcoin Talk, uh, two lines, uh, how to a loop in two lines to print the numbers from 1 to 10. Okay, so you can see here, see the two lines that begins with 1. Yeah. Log colon output string 1. So we say that 1, you see simply that log output string, it can get uh, two parameters to set order. But uh, here at this example, I make them always the same parameter. So one is an output string. The next thing, see the next line, you see an arrow in the middle. There are curly brackets that are separated by an arrow. Can you see this? Yes. This arrow is implication. A implies B. A question mark means a variable. So if something to be denoted by X is an output and um, we see brackets, that's a list. And math sum means that 1 plus x is y, and y is less than 11, then this implies that y is also an output string. Uh, I see. And every single little unit here is one of these triples. Yes, in triples it will be much more elaborated. It will be about 10 triples. You, you can open the paste bin and see the output, and you can also get the impression how with logic and implication, you can program everything. Okay, cool. And I'll make sure that the code snippet that we we're just discussing will be uh, in the show notes. So in the white paper, you mentioned something like an example, like cats are mammals, or you even have an example about the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Now that is way more complicated than printing numbers one through 10. So like, if, if I wanted to assert the knowledge that cats are mammals, I would have to define mammals somehow, and that I have to define warm blood and hair and uh, quadruped and animal kingdom. You know, it seems like a turtle's all the way down. Like, if I'm trying to assert that cats are mammals, it seems that there are so many definitions that need to occur. And then what does it eventually come down to that can be computer provable? You know, how, how can a computer prove that cats are mammals? That's a very good question. And indeed, you specify to the computer the theory. You specify facts and rules. And it reason over the facts and rules you give it. You can express your knowledge in multiple uh, levels of abstractions. You can define what is a mammal and you can simply use the word mammal. Uh, as long as the consequence is derivable from the rules, then you can prove it, or the automatic prover can find it. But then let's say I wanted to assert on TauChain that cats are fish. You know, what happens if I try to submit that transaction? Okay, that's a very good question, and it touches how negations are dealt on TauChain. There are two options, giving the short explanation or the long, exp or the long explanation. Uh, the short explanation is that we, we have a mechanism called negation as failure. For example, you query for all the cats that are fish and you get empty result. And you can, given a proof of execution, 
you can uh, have this as a guarantee that gets cats aren't fish according to the supplied knowledge base. But there might be an irrational actor who says, yes, I have a cat over here, that's a fish. This is why we have the separation. We have the context. All the clients run the root chain and any application they want. And they, of course, do not run applications they do not want. At this sense, and only at this sense, it's like the centralized app store. For someone who is not a programmer, it's kind of like the centralized app store if, if you don't care about the code, except that here you can also have your custom tests. You know, one can publish requirements set for security and common users can use it and don't run programs that aren't secure according to those measures. I see. So I could on my own node, for example, say that I don't want to deal with any peers who thinks that cats are fish and just filters them out and, and that's easy enough. Yes, the, all those rules we speak about, you of course can locally configure your, your client as you wish and give it any rules you wish. We have of course no way to avoid it, so why not uh, give it at the front door? So could you theoretically run a Bitcoin node on TauChain? Of course. You could re-implement Bitcoin Core in Tau and be able to maybe even send and receive Bitcoins from a Tau smart contract and create transactions on the Bitcoin network. Of course, everything that a finite computer can do, Tau can also do. And since our computers can run a Bitcoin node, Tau can also run a Bitcoin node. That's, that's really interesting implications there. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that Tau Chain has got elements of Ethereum because you can write any type of contract you want. And it has elements of GitHub even, and I'm even hearing um, elements of MadeSafe because you have a DHT, and as you talk about in the white paper, you're using the um, uh, what is that K word? Kim Kamel Kameldia Kim Kadimlia, Kadimlia. Yes, it's a, a variant of DHT. A, a significant uh, worth mentioning difference between uh, maybe two uh, worth mentioning differences between Tau and Ethereum. First is the self-definability. Ethereum protocol is fixed. If they want, for example, to change the block size as in Bitcoin, they, they will have to fork in some cases. The protocol of Ethereum itself isn't a smart contract. On the other hand, Tau defines itself, speaks about itself. And maybe later I will emphasize how this does not cause paradoxes. The second worth mentioning difference from Ethereum is that on Ethereum, all nodes have to download the blockchain, and while the process of verifying the blockchain, they have to execute all contracts. They have to execute all codes. On Tau, on the other hand, you run only applications you want to run, only networks you participate, only networks you want to participate. But every client still has to download and verify that root core Tau chain blockchain, right? Uh, no, because since the, the language is, is a general purpose language, you can have your very big and standalone local applications that might have a tiny blockchain feature and you can write it all on Tau and it will use the blockchain only for that specific feature. You can't do economically on Ethereum because everyone runs everything and it's all part of the blockchain. Code and data and blockchain are separated. 
I might be a little confused on this, but on Tau, like I'm just talking about the core Tau blockchain that, that defines the client. You don't have to download and run that from the Genesis block to participate in the network? You have, but only this. No ledgers, no smart contracts, only the client. The rules of the network itself. Okay, cool. As we discussed, the details of that blockchain are defined by the network. So if I haven't run my Tau client in a couple of days, I still need to turn it on and let it update that core skeletal blockchain. But I don't need to download every single app, every single transaction, because all that stuff is out there on the, on the DHT. And if I need it, I can go get it. Yes, that's right. Of course, this is also up to the specific application. Maybe the specific application requires you to download some data or some sidechain and verify it from the beginning. But nothing that Tao forces you to, uh, to do. Okay. Now, a minute ago, you mentioned that it's a self-defining protocol and you prevent paradoxes in that. How is that, how is that paradox proof? Yes. Okay. So le 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 let me tell you a nice story, if you have a few minutes. Oh, please. Please do. Let me tell you a very nice story. Um, it begins with Cad Cantor. Cantor is the founder of uh, set theory, Cantor set theory, which serves as foundations of mathematics together with first order logic. And he was on the 19th century. By the way, he was sure that everything he found was told him by God. And he was entering and exiting mental houses uh, all the time. Anyway, the, the set theory is built upon uh, sets um, and the relation of being an element of the set, membership. And from these notions, the, there arise some paradoxes. There is the paradox that Cantor himself found that there cannot be the set of all sets. I won't prove it here, but he showed that if the answer to the question whether there is a set of all sets is also like the halting problem, both yes and no. Afterwards came, at the beginning of the 20th century, came Russell. And Russell came with this famous paradox, the Russell paradox on naive set theory, saying the following. Assume we have a set, call it A, of all sets that, that do not reference themselves all sets that do not contain themselves, that do not speak about themselves. All normal sets call it so, all well-defined sets call it so. And then he asks, does this set belongs to itself? If you say it belongs to itself, then by its own definition, it must not belong to itself. If it does not belong to itself, then by own definition, it must belong to itself. So we again, have a proof of both yes and no. We prove by contradiction both yes and no. And when you hear Russell and Cantor paradoxes, you say, all right, because you speak about yourself, self-reference, sets that contains themselves or set that contains all sets. So you might be not surprised that there are paradoxes when you speak about yourself. But I can show you a surprising result. I call it the cat paradox. That shows you that if you forbid, if you make this consequence and forbid self-reference, you get a much worse case. Let's say we indeed forbid every set to belong to itself. And now let X be the set of everything that isn't a cat. X if everything is not a cat. Now, I claim that X itself, the set X itself, is a cat. How do I prove that? Because if X is not a cat, then 
x belongs to itself by its own definition. And we said a minute ago that we forbid self-reference. So once you forbid self-reference, I can give you not a paradox. I can give you a formal proof that there is a new kind of cats. I can give you a very spooky logic just by disallowing self-reference. So where the problem is if not in the self-reference? Well, the problem is with negation. When you say sets that do not contain themselves or everything that is not a cat. If you said every animal that is not a cat, you wouldn't get this paradox because that set X is not an animal. So the problem, the paradoxes arise because we use, we define things by saying what they aren't and not by saying what they are. And this gives rise to constructive mathematics that what exists is only what you construct. You cannot prove uh, by contradiction. And indeed, Tao's logic does not contain negations and this constructive logic. The only negation it contains is, as we mentioned before, negation as failure. You can show that there are no results. There is no fact that meet the query. In the my cat is a fish like example. Yes. You can also express negation but showing that a given statement can be transformed according to the given rules into something that implies false. And nothing can imply false, hence the statement itself is false. So that's kind of weak negations. We cannot define things but what they are, but what they are not, but only by what they are. Gotcha. I understand this concept, and it's probably going to take me a couple days of thinking about it. <laughs> to, I can really grasp. I see, I see what you mean, though, that how the paradoxes come from negation. And that, that gives rise to the decidability and to the lack of paradoxes. You cannot prove both true and false, unlike Turing machines. But you can prove inclusion and exclusion, or uh, inclusion and lack of inclusion. It's, it's, call it take the complement... I meaning say everything that is not, you can take the complement only with respect to a given universe. It, take the complements of cats only with respect to animals or mammals or anything you want. But you cannot simply say everything that is not a cat. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This really sounds amazing. So the future of this project, like how far along are you? Where do you think Tao Chain will be like you know, six months, 12 months from now? I'd say my, my much less than six. I can't estimate it more accurately. I'm working on, we are working for about uh, a year. And it all began with Zenet. Have you heard of Zenet? No. And the, the public supercomputer. I came out uh, with Zenet, which uh, is a plan of decentralized network for renting computational power. And through the Bitcoin talk thread, Zenith's Bitcoin talk thread, I met uh, someone called Hunter Miner Crafter, HMC. And we had a debate there about uh, Zenith, and uh, we continued uh, our discussions about Zenith and uh, many other topics uh, on ILC. And uh, it turns out that uh, HMC is a very veteran uh, Bitcoiner, and he says that discussions about ideas such as Tao were discussed on several forums since 2008. And he told me this idea, Tao isn't my invention. Uh, I mean, he says that 
HMC says it's, it isn't his invention as well, but as mentioned, was discussed in certain forums, and, but uh, no one uh, yet did it. But then I understood that Zenets amount to a very few lines in Tau or in Agoras. You know, it, Zenet now amounts to rules you configure locally what to do when a request for computation is incoming. You can require money, uh, how much money, which kind of computation, all your terms. You can simply define in your rules. The nodes speak between themselves naturally. All you have to give them is the rules, what to do. The rules doesn't even have to be explicit. Everything that is implied for them, the closure of the implication is always calculated. That's why the compiler is basically automated theory improver, and indeed you can use it as an automated theory improver. So when do you when do you think your Genesis block will launch? You know, like how far away are you from this being a working network? Well, we have a working interpreter, and now uh, I'm working hard on finishing a compiler, and uh, I'm not uh, giving up uh, performance and uh, correctness, of course. What do you? What language are you actually writing the? Uh application in? In uh, C++. And then in the largest scale, like this is something that if it's running on every computer could replace Google. This is a, an incredibly large scope project. Do you think this is, do you think this is something that, you know, that my mom is going to run on her iPad? Or is this something that you see just sort of staying in the crypto community and with the programming community? Or do you think this is something like you know, Bitcoin is, is attempting to get onto every device in the world. We want everybody to use Bitcoin and not even know that they're using it. Is, is, does TauChain have that possibility also, or do you think it'll be a smaller group? No, of course. TauChain is, uh, is only a platform for, for applications, and many people will uh, use applications without even knowing it's, it's working on Tau. It's really, really interesting talking to you. Is there anything else you want to add? Are there any other uh, features or, or news about Tau Chain we haven't covered yet? No, no, nothing specific that comes to mind. Ohad, thanks so much for your time today. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you or to find more information about Tau Chain? The, the main website is uh, idni.org, idni.org. And also at uh, tauchain.org, there is uh, a list of links. Um, and, uh, on uh, Bitcoin Talk, um, the thread, uh, link to the thread appears on there. And we'll have all these links in the show notes. And idni.org, and that stands for Intelligent Decentralized Networks Initiative. That's right. Okay. Ahad, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to episode 261 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Matthew and Ohad. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Matthew Zipkin. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.